lots of the content of Matthew is taken from the book of Mark. Um, so lots of it has obviously been picked up from Mark and transported into the Gospel of Matthew. Um, if you were Jesus' disciple and were one of the first people there seeing it firsthand, why would you need to take the content from somebody else's book and, and, and not write it yourself? So one thing. Two, there are hints throughout the book that it was written after the siege and destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. There are a load of different reasons, but lots of people think that it was probably written a bit later on by a, a Jew, a Jewish Christian. Um, it's a very Jewish book and written to Jewish Christians. And by that, I guess I mean um, Christians who were like almost just the first generation of Christians who were a bit of a sect of Judaism, really. It wasn't a separate religion. It was a, a portion of Judaism who believed something particular about who the Messiah was. And it was probably written by a Jew who was speaking to that audience. And again, there are loads of reasons why it's seen as a Jewish book. You might know some of this, but lots of the Jewish customs that are talked about in Matthew are not really unpacked. So it's obvious that the readers are supposed to understand those customs inside out and probably do. Um, it's got loads of references to the Old Testament Jewish stories and the fulfillment of the prophecies in a way that some of the other Gospels don't in, in so much depth. Um, it's just written and set in a, a Jewish context. And what Kate just read to us about the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew, here's a big hint. The, and the writer of Matthew links Jesus right back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. In the other genealogy, you can read in the other gospel, actually Jesus is linked back to Adam, so to a different place. In this one, he's linked back to Abraham as the father of the Jewish nation and that great promise that Kate just read to us. So there are loads of references in Matthew's gospel to Jews, to people who understood Jewish culture inside out. And it was probably written in a city called Antioch. Um, Antioch's in modern-day Turkey, but would have been in Roman Syria. It's right on the sort of border of Turkey and Syria. Um, and it was probably written to a church that had begun as a Jewish, you know, a bit of Judaism, a Jewish sect in the way that I described, but was becoming increasingly Gentile. So loads of people who weren't necessarily Jews getting in on the act. And I don't think the writer is saying that's a bad thing. I think the writer of this gospel is saying, but remember where the story comes from. Remember that Jesus is the fulfillment of this big Jewish story. So I think the writer of this gospel is trying to anchor this Jesus and the story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus and all of the stuff we're going to talk about during Advent into the Jewish story really directly. I don't think he's saying it's a problem. In fact, this book's written for everybody, but I think he's definitely trying to anchor Jesus in this big Jewish story. Um, it's also worth noting as well that the writer of Matthew is really keen to emphasize the divinity of Jesus um, in a way that some of the other Gospels talk about it slightly differently. In the book of Matthew, he talks about um, Jesus being the son of David and in this genealogy you find King David in the genealogy he talks about Jesus being the son of man a different terminology at the end of this genealogy when he talks about the birth of Jesus he talks about um, Jesus being Emmanuel God with us um, and in the book of Matthew you find lots of different re references which have got a particular spin which are talking about the div divinity of Jesus as well. Um, so, as Kate said, um, knowing your story, knowing um, your family history, being able to find your place in the world is important, isn't it? And I think the writer of this book is definitely saying to us about Jesus that you need to know the big story that Jesus fits into. Um, here is uh, 
don't know if you can quite see this. This is tiny, but this is, I've done a little bit of family history in my family. So this is um, the Parr family line. So like the, all the powers in my family that I could find um, going back to 1735. Um, so right at the top there, you've got a guy called Henry Parr. Um, Henry Parr is a man who lived in Huddersfield and he was involved in the woolen industry. Um, and then under that, you've got a guy called Thomas Parr and his wife, Rachel Walker, they lived in Huddersfield and were involved in the woolen industry. Uh, under that, you've got Henry Parr again and Martha Goodjet lived in Huddersfield, worked in a woolen mill. Under that, you've got William Parr and Anne Charlesworth lived in Huddersfield in a woolen mill. George Parr, Lydia Littlewood lived on the same street in Huddersfield and worked in a woolen mill. Under that, Frank Parr and Florrie Hurst, who worked in a woolen mill. Jack Parr and Mary Ridsdale, my grandparents, who lived in Huddersfield and in their early life worked in the woolen industry. And then my dad, Ken Parr, who learned to play the flute and moved to Torquay. Um, <laughs> so, so there was quite a break in the family. In fact, in my family history, one of these people, I, I, I tried to find it. I couldn't work out which one it was. One of them is um, on there. You can look on the census and you can find out loads of stuff about what jobs they did, where they lived, who they married, how many kids they had, all of that sort of stuff. One of my relatives here was, um, his job on the census said that he was a box minder. Now, I think that is a job in the woolen industry, looking at the looms or something, but I can just imagine in my family, in this northern woolen mill in Huddersfield, you know, a member of my family being sent off to look after the box in the corner, you know. Sit in the corner, watch that box and make sure it don't go anywhere. Right? <laughs> um, that would, that's how it would work in my family. But <laughs> understanding, your, understanding your roots and where you come from and what story you're part of is really important, isn't it? Because I think unless you do, you can edit and change a bit. You can miss some of the depth of your story. You can miss some of the understanding of who you are and where you've come from and where you're going, therefore. Um, Steve often talks to people in Oasis about the founding story of Oasis. You've probably heard him talk about when he was 14 and he was in, living in Croydon and in Crystal Palace and he wanted to set up a hostel, a hospital and a school and he tells this story over and over and over and over again to people. <laughs> um, but he does it deliberately because he wants to make sure people in Oasis have got a sense of where Oasis comes from and what the story is. And if you understand the story, it's quite easy to do your job today. But if you don't understand the story, or you've missed some of it, or don't get the context, you lose a bit of the depth of what Oasis is about. You can choose to edit Oasis and do something slightly different. You can choose to do something different with it. And so Steve constantly says to people in Oasis, remember the big story of where Oasis came from. And I think the writer of the Gospel here, in a completely different context, is doing the same thing and saying... Remember the big story of where Jesus came from, and it's a Jewish story and was started with Abraham and that huge promise that we'll come back to talk about in a moment. So why are we talking about all of this now? Um, so it's Advent, and Advent is usually that period of waiting and anticipation and all of that stuff in the lead up to Christmas. And in my view, there's a sense of like now and not yet, n not yetness to Christmas, like we're anticipating something that's coming in a couple of weeks. But we're beginning to celebrate stuff now. We're beginning to have Christmas parties. We're beginning, me and Kate and Alicia went on a Christmas lunch last Sunday. And we're beginning to drag some of the celebration forward into now. So there's this sense of waiting for something that's coming. And there's this sense of trying to drag some of it forward, the celebration now for what's coming in the future. And as I was reading the genealogy, I think you get a bit of that sense 
over this massive span of time from Abraham through to King David, from King David through to people sent off to exile in Babylon, from the people who are sent off to exile to Jesus. There are in Matthew's gospel three different sets of 14 generations, um, probably quite deliberately because that's perfect numbers and all of that sort of stuff, but this huge span of time. And I think there's a sense in that genealogy of waiting, waiting, waiting for this Messiah to come, this liberator to come. Um, In Matthew's gospel, he says, even the son of God came, God, Emmanuel. This sense of waiting and this sense of trying to drag the thing that they're waiting for into the now. You can get this sense, I think, through the genealogies of the Jews beginning to understand a bit of what God is really like, slowly, 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 understanding a bit more, getting it wrong sometimes, but having a bit more understanding over here. You get onto the minor prophets, the major prophets who are calling out for a God that looks like this, not like that. And you get this sense through the sort of history of the Jewish people of them slowly getting a bigger, better, deeper understanding of who God is. So I think you get a sense of waiting right in the middle of that genealogy and you get a sense of the thing they're waiting for them trying to get to grips with right now in the here and now. Um, I think you also get a glimpse of that in the particular story of Abraham and we'll probably talk for the rest of this a a bit about Abraham. Um, Abraham, if you've read, it's like Genesis chapter 3 through to 23 or something like that, about 20 chapters that talk about Abraham, particularly in Genesis. Um, It's quite an action-packed story, but in amongst all of the stories are all of these great promises from God. So Kate just read us that promise about how he was going to have loads of children and they were going to be more than the stars in the universe and they were going to bless all the peoples of the earth. That fantastic promise. But he had promises from God saying, go and live in Canaan and you'll be safe there. And he had promises about how he's going to have kids and Abraham had bumped into, I think, the one God of the universe, and he'd got this clarity, this understanding that he seemed to care about humanity, and he'd got this understanding as well that God wanted to bless all the peoples of the earth. So he got these promises that were dotted about through the story of Abraham, but they weren't fulfilled immediately, so Abraham had to wait. Abraham had to wait on those promises. He was told that he was going to have kids, and yet you read in the story right into his late years, he still hadn't had kids. And there's this sense of waiting built in to the story of Abraham for the promises that God had given him. I think Abraham also had real moments of clarity about who God was, um, but also real moments of misunderstanding of who God was too. Um, A couple of examples of that. So God says to Abraham, you're going to have kids. He's quite an old man. His wife, Sarah, is not able to have kids at that age. And so Abraham can't really work out how this is going to happen. Um, and there's a story in, in Genesis which talks about him deciding to sleep with Hagar, um, their servant. And so he does that, and she becomes pregnant. Um, and that all goes terribly wrong, and she decides to you know, disappear off because she's been treated badly by Sarah. So the story goes... And God stops her and says, you've got to go back. But God comes back to Abraham and said, no, this isn't right. I gave you this moment of clarity about what was going to happen. And then you did something really stupid with that moment of clarity. Actually, it's supposed to be like this. Actually, Sarah's going to have a child. Actually, that's how we're going to bless the whole world. And God sort of drags Abraham back to the moment of clarity he had. Moments of clarity and moments of misunderstanding. Um, Later on, right at the sort of end of the stories of Abraham in Genesis, there's that really famous story, which you probably know, about Abraham deciding to um, sacrifice his son, Isaac. 
So this is after Isaac's born. Um, and that's quite a difficult story, isn't it? The story in the Bible goes a bit like this, massively paraphrased, but boomy voice from the sky. God says, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac, Abraham. So I, Abraham happily sets off with his child to go and build a funeral pyre and straps his son to the funeral pyre and is about to kill him and set it on fire and all that sort of stuff. Another boomy voice from the sky. God says, actually, Abraham, this was a test. You don't need to do this. But I'm pleased you've passed the test. And, and then you actually get that bit of prophecy, that, um, that bit of um, promise that Kate just read. That's a really difficult story, isn't it? Do we genuinely believe, do I genuinely believe, that God mandated what we would today call child abuse? Um, not sure. My reading of the story, and you, you'll have to think about it for yourselves, but I wonder if it goes a bit more like this, that Abraham is a man who'd had these moments of real clarity about who God was. He's spotted a, the one God. He's spotted a God who seems to care about humanity. He seems to have understood a, a God who wants to bless everybody on earth and not just his particular little tribe in you know, the Middle East where he was living. Real moment of clarity. But Abraham is a man of his time, and this is thousands of years ago, and at that time, you know, sacrificing to the gods was important. That's the way you appeased the gods. Even child sacrifice sometimes was an appropriate thing to do. And so Abraham slips back to type a bit and thinks, oh, I better, you know, get on board and do sacrifice to the god as I see it, and sets off to sacrifice his child. And I think he gets to the funeral pyre and has another moment of clarity where he realizes this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. This isn't what God wants from me. This isn't what the one God that I've understood a bit about really wants. And he's got another moment of clarity where he says, this can't be right, that God is asking me to give up on my humanity and give up on my being made in the image of God and do this terrible thing. And has another moment of clarity where he decides he's not going to do it like that. And I think that story then gets written up in that slightly more black and white way that perhaps we read it in Genesis. I think Abraham had moments of clarity and moments of misunderstanding in his journey as he was grappling with who God is. I like to think about this as almost like our progressive understanding of who God is. God is there for us to understand, written into the fabric of our relationships, our humanity, written into the fabric of the universe, heaven and earth are near. We talked in the series a few weeks ago about revelation and that sense of thin places where heaven and earth are overlapped and it's actually here for us to understand. And the job is of humanity to slowly, slowly, slowly begin to understand it better. Um, I was uh, at Kate's house last uh, weekend and uh, Jacob, my nephew, is playing with his toys and he's got one of those um, little cube boxes where you've got to ram different shapes into the top of it. Um, his wasn't quite like this, but you know there's those little cube boxes where you get like a hexagon-shaped one and it's got to fit in the hexagon hole and then a sphere and it's got to fit in the sphere hole and a cube to fit in the cube hole and some of them are blue and some of them are red and some of them are green, all that sort of stuff. And here's just an analogy of how this works for me. That, you know, Jacob's sitting there, he's got everything on hand for this to work properly for him. He's got everything on hand for him to be able to understand this. The colour of the, the red... Um, sphere thing matches the color on the box. He's got his mum sitting next to him explaining how to do it. He's got somebody actually like moving his hand into the hole. And sometimes he just about gets it. Sometimes he just about realizes you've got to ram something into this box. But on other occasions, he lobs it across the room because he's bored. Um, and I think 
humanity's understanding of God is a, a little bit like that, that we're slowly, slowly, slowly understanding this big God of the universe that's all there for us to understand. And sometimes we manage to get the pieces in the hole and sometimes we're lobbing them out of the box. Um, this story of Abraham, I think Abraham's waiting. I think he's trying to drag the, the stuff, the glimpses of God that he understands. He's trying to do stuff about it right now, in the here and now. I think Abraham, I put on my first slide, is a bit of a pioneer. Um, so let me just give you a potted history of what Abraham got up to in those first 20 chapters. So he lived in Iraq. He lived in Mesopotamia in um, a place called Ur with his father, Terah. And in the um, Jewish oral traditions and actually written into the Quran and in lots of different places, there are some more unpackings of his, his dad and what his dad got up to. His dad was a polytheist, so believed in many, many different gods. There are also stories about his dad being an idol maker. Um, and in the early stages of his life, Abraham used to have arguments with his dad about, actually, I don't think it's supposed to be like that. There are lots of different gods. I think there's one god, and there's this sort of recording of that argument going on. Um, Abraham gets married to Sarah, and he's got a nephew called Lot, and they're all living together in Iraq, um, in Mesopotamia. And then God says to them, you need to go to Canaan. You need, there's this promise about going to Canaan, and God says you need to go to Canaan. So they all up sticks and set off on this journey and end up in northern Mesopotamia, in just the bottom of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And they stay there for a bit. His dad dies. Um, they're still not in Canaan. Canaan's the, um, you know, like uh, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, the bit on the Mediterranean coast, the Levant on the Mediterranean coast. And they're still not there. So God reminds them again and says, you've got to go to Canaan. And so they set off to Canaan. They get to Canaan and there's this massive famine. And so they decide not to stay there and end up in Egypt. In Egypt, there's this really funny story about um, Abraham pretending that Sarah's not his wife, but his sister, so that the Pharaoh doesn't kill him. Um, they go through this whole story where they meet the Pharaoh and eventually they get chucked out of Egypt because... Um, Abraham lied about who his wife was or not, and they end up back in uh, Canaan, and at that point, Lot and um, Abraham split up a bit, and Lot goes over there, and they're quite, sounds like relatively rich men for their time. They've got herds of cattle and sheep and things, and Lot takes his lot over there, and Abraham goes over this direction, and then there are wars, so Lot gets um, captured by a, an army, and Abraham sets off to get him back and actually slaughters the king, it talks about in this story. And then there's the whole bit about God promising about you're going to have kids and that story I told you about Hagar. And then at the end of all of that, Sarah eventually gets pregnant and has Isaac. And at the end of all of that, there's a story about him going off to sacrifice Isaac or not. And there's this big, massive action-packed story in the story of Abraham. This is a guy who's understood glimpses of God. He's waiting for a world that doesn't quite look the way that he's seen it. But he doesn't sit on his hands. He's not an he's not a waiter that sits and is completely passive he gets on with stuff he does loads of stuff there's just masses written in that story alone he doesn't sit on his hands he makes mistakes as he goes so he's prepared to make do stuff and yet make mistakes and he definitely does make mistakes he's sometimes unsure about what to do he's sometimes unsure about the promises he's been given by god god says you and sarah are going to have kids and there's a couple of sentences where it says Abraham breaks down laughing about it. He just isn't really sure that that's genuinely what God's saying. He takes risks. He's an entrepreneur. I read a, an article that says he's like the, the first entrepreneur, if you like. And because he's like that, he manages to drag humanity from 
believing in loads of different gods, violent gods, to humanity that believes in one God and a God that cares about humanity and a God that wants to bless the whole world because he's that type of character. Um, I think we see people like that in, well, in and amongst us and around us all the time. Here's a, a famous example of somebody who I think probably went on a similar sort of journey, really. So, Mother Teresa, I had the opportunity to, um, when I went to Calcutta, to volunteer at some of Mother Teresa's um, projects with the nuns in Calcutta that she runs. Um, and in order to do that, you've got to get up at um, 4, I can't remember, but very early in the morning, like 4.30 on, on the morning, and you've got to disappear off to the mother house, it's called, and you go and you're, you have to take mass with all of the, the, the nuns there, and then once you've done that, they sign you up to different projects around the city. And so they sent us all off to what's called the Home for the Dying um, in a place called Caligat in Calcutta, and we spent the day there, and it's this fantastic place. It's a place where people who would have other di otherwise died destitute on the gutter in Calcutta who were given dignity at the end of their life. Um, it's an incredible place. But, you know, when you hear the stories of Mother Teresa, and you, after her death, we read all of her diary entries, didn't we, and some of her letters, and you probably know a bit about that. Mother Teresa says in her life she had moments of clarity about who God was, but they were fleeting, and she had to struggle through and persevere through the rest of her life, sometimes feeling like God had gone completely silent. And yet Mother Teresa was faithful to those glimpses of God that she got and she was persevering and she did stuff about it and she took risks and she made mistakes and she got some stuff right and I'm sure got some stuff wrong but it was because she was being faithful to and persevering with those glimpses of God and I think you see a little bit of that in the well a lot of that in the story of Abraham where those glimpses of God, the God that he got he did something about he was persevering with them so back to the genealogy I think the writer of Matthew is saying to us, Jesus is set in that context. He's set in that big Jewish story. In fact, Jesus has not come to do something different, to break away from all of that, to set up a new religion. You know, he hasn't come to do any of that. He's come to fulfill those promises and that story. He's come to prove that there is hope and death isn't the end. He's come to say that we can be hopeful and, and, and trustful about the promises that have been made. But he's also come to demonstrate, if you want to live out that massive promise that all the earth is going to be blessed, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed, live like this. And so the writer of Matthew is trying to say to us, Jesus came in that context. That's the big story that he came from. But we all know that we live in a world that's still now and not yet. We talked through a Revelation series about that a bit, didn't we? That there's loads of stuff that isn't the way it should be, that the kingdom of God isn't fully here We've still got glimpses of what God looks like now, but we've got to drag it forward into the here and now. And I think Advent is this time of waiting and this time of us deciding what to do about that waiting. So if we turn Advent in its broadest sense, so not just Advent and Christmas, but those periods of waiting into coziness, into putting on our Christmas jumpers, into sitting by the fire, into reminiscing a bit, into drinking soporific drinks and listening to quiet songs and all of that sort of stuff... I think we've lost the plot. I think Advent is supposed to be a rallying cry. Advent is supposed to be us crying out for something that isn't here yet, but we wish it was. So how do we respond to a world where we're waiting, and yet there's this level of injustice in the world? How do we respond to a world where we're waiting and we're in Advent, and yet this is the horrible war going on in Yemen? 
how do we respond waiting, actively waiting, to a world where this goes on in the Mediterranean? How do we respond in this community or to a world where we're waiting and aching and yet people don't have enough food to eat? How do we wait? How do we do Advent in this community in a world where people feel isolated? How do we do Advent? How do we actively wait in the way of Mother Teresa or Abraham in a world where young people in this community might well end up in gangs? How do we actively wait? How do we do Advent in a world where perhaps relationships in our lives are not the way we'd like them to be? And I don't think that's a rhetorical question. I think we are supposed to wait with an ache that says the world is not the way it should be. And I think Advent is supposed to be a rallying cry for that. It's not supposed to be a time of quiet reflection, I don't think. So practically, what can we do about that? I mean, if your ache that the world isn't the way it should be is about Yemen, go on the D Disasters Emergency Committee website and there's a um, appeal that they're doing at the moment. At the moment, if your ache is that the world isn't the way it should be about young people in this community, well, Stu's here somewhere and Nathan and people will talk to you about how to get involved in youth work here in this community. If my ache is about the fact that people can't afford to eat in this community, well, yesterday we did, well, I didn't, but lots of people did 12 hours carol singing on the station. If you weren't there for that and still want to give to that, I'm sure, um, I'm sure Rebecca would absolutely love that. And there's a bucket here at the front. If your ache is about the fact that the world isn't the way it should be and Advent is your opportunity to fix broken relationships in your life, or well, maybe that's something you need to do. I think the story, the genealogy, the story of Abraham is the writer saying to us, Jesus is set in that context and look at the story of Abraham. He was aching for a world that isn't the way it should be and he was actively getting on and waiting and being Advent and doing something about it. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to just leave a couple of moments of pause for us, though. Um, I, you know, there might be other stuff that you're thinking of that's the ache for you. What is the ache where the world isn't the way it should be? And Advent is a moment to actively wait on bringing that about. So I'm going to leave a couple of moments of pause for you to think about what that means for you, for me, in our lives. Lord, we ache for a world that isn't the way it should be. We pray that in Advent, as we wait, we can be active, persevering, hopeful, pioneering, trusting, entrepreneurial. Lord, help us to take seriously the challenges that there are in our world. Help us to actually practically respond to that ache. Lord, we thank you for the role models of Abraham and the different people set out in the genealogy. And we thank you for the example of Jesus showing us how to live out that promise to bless the entire world, all the peoples of the earth. Lord, help us to put that into practice in our lives and in this community. Amen.